Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. So as it is the first Sunday of the month, most of you know that uh, the elders are teaching through the book of uh, 1 Timothy. <clears throat> For the others that, uh, you know, J- Jerry, Jeff, Mike, and I, uh, we take turns preaching on the first Sunday of the month, and we've been uh, going through this, uh, this series. So today we are going to look at the basis of prayer and what we should do about it. And so let's open up to First uh, Timothy. I should have put a bookmark in here. First um, Timothy chapter two. Get ready there. Um, but this is what I'd like you to take away with, from this. <clears throat> because of Christ's sacrifice, He is our mediator. And because he is our mediator, we should pray. Again, because of Christ's sacrifice, he is our mediator. And because he is our mediator, we should pray. So let's look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to uh, read uh, through verse 8, starting in verse 1, but then we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is, in the te- which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So last month, Jerry shared with us that we must pray. As verse 1 states, it's first of all, it is a priority in the church, as individuals and as a key part of our public worship. We must be regularly coming to God with our requests and our needs, worship and confession, in blessing others and interceding on our behalf, and interceding on their behalf, and thank, thanking God for what he has done for us. We need to get our pride out of, our, out of the way and always be humbling ourselves before God. I, too, find it very hard to pray, and I know it's because of my pride, and it keeps getting in the way. I need constant reminders to be humble before God so that he can work in me. And we need to be praying for everyone. We need to pray for those in authority and that people be saved and come to the knowledge of faith. 
But the question then comes is, why can we do these things? Why can and should we pray this way? So, <coughs> so we are going to see the basis, what the basis of prayer is. So starting in, verse po- starting in verse 5, Paul shares with Timothy that it is through Christ that we can come before God. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So before we can start going through this passage, we need to kind of get a, a bit of background. And that is, the first thing is, sin separates us from God. As sinful humans, we cannot come before God. We are separated because of our sin. Romans 3.23 says that we have all gone against God's will, and, and we cannot make it right. We fall short. God is perfect, and we are not. We cannot relate to a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. And Isaiah 59, 2 says, Because of our sin, God does not hear us. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear you. So we need someone to go before a holy and perfect God on our behalf. We need a mediator. So second, we see our perfect mediator, and that we find here in, our, in this passage. Before the cross, the covenant of Israel required a human priest to go into the temple or the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies. They would come before the ark to bring the petitions and sins of Israel to God. Leviticus 16 provides some detail on the complexity of how Israel and the priests had to prepare before the priests could even come before God. But having a sinful human priest as a mediator between man and God was not a perfect situation. For many reasons, some of them include the priest would eventually die and another would have to take his place. As Hebrews 7, 23 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They had to continually make sacrifices for their own sins, as we see in verse 27 of Hebrews. They could, they could also not completely deal with the problem of sin. In fact, Hebrews 10, 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But Christ is a better mediator. He is the true mediator. Christ died as the perfect and complete sacrifice for our sin, and he rose again and conquered death. If we go look at Hebrews 7 again, we can complete this narrative starting in verse 23. Says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he holds his pre, uh, priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should have that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later then the law appoints a son who has, made, has, who has been made perfect forever. So Christ is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect high priest. There are several important attributes of Christ as our mediator, mediator that we see here in uh, First Timothy. First, there is only one mediator. There are not multiple mediators. We get to go directly to God with our prayers. We do not need to go through another person to bring petitions. In fact, we saw in the Old Testament that Israel had to go through a person, and it wasn't the best situation. Unfortunately, there's still churches that suggests we need to pray to a person, a human person, as a mediator between us and God. Paul clearly says that there is only one mediator. Second, we see that our mediator is both God and man. He is 100% God. We see in John 1 that Christ was with God in the beginning. He was God. In Philippians 2.6, Paul says that Christ is in the form of God. Then in both of these passages, we see that Christ, our mediator, is 100% man. John 1 says that God put on flesh or became a human. Philippians 2.5-7 says, Having the, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So not only is Christ, God, and able to, re- able to relate 100% to deity and the holiness and perfection of God, but he can fully relate to humans. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. So let's think about this very, important, this, this very imperfect word picture that I tried to form here. If I was an ant crawling around in the dirt, how could I relate to you? How could an ant relate to a human? There's no way unless you become an ant too. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to reach me and build a relationship with me, you could try scratching my thorax or tickling behind my antenna. But 
that would be an imperfect relationship. What would be better, what would be better is if you became an ant like me. And you could build the relationship ant to ant. That is what Christ did for us. We were the ant, and Christ came to build that relationship. Christ, being God, is a perfect mediator because he became a man like me. Third, our mediator is our ransom. As we saw earlier, sin separates us from the holy and perfect God. Even with a mediator, because of sin, we are separated from God. So not only did Christ, being God, have, have to humble himself and become a man, as we saw in Philippians, but he had to pay the ransom for sin. Mark 10.45 says that Christ came as a ransom for many. So what is a ransom? It is a price paid for a forfeited life or the price required to save someone from death. In this case, it is a price paid for procuring the pardon of sins and the redemption of the sinner from the punishment of eternal death and separation from God. So Christ paid that ransom. The Israelites used unblemished animals as sacrifices for sin in anticipation for what was to come. But Hebrews 10.4 clearly says that these animals did not take away sin. In fact, it was impossible. Only Christ's sacrifice on the cross fulfilled the requirement of the ransom. John the Baptist says in John 1, Behold the Lamb. Not one of the lambs that had, has to be continually sacrificed symbolically to cover sin, but behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world through Christ, and he is talking about Christ. Through Christ, sin is truly and completely taken away. Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now we look briefly at Hebrews 10. But if we look a little bit more in there, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, but when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He says, This is done. I'm done. Sin is taken care of. No more. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
So Christ's sacrifice was all that was needed. The price was paid for procuring the pardon of sin and the redemption of the sinner. And this was all sufficient. Christ Jesus is our one and only mediator with God who made this possible because of his sacrifice as a ransom for us. And for those of you that are using the notes, this next slide is not in the notes because I had to cut some notes out so they fit on a half sheet of paper. So, don't worry, don't get lost. Um, so then, Paul then says that this is why he does what he does. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. This message is Paul's focus. It was his commission. In a way, he's reiterating what he said at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Paul mission, Paul's mission was to herald the good news of this perfect mediator, particularly to the Gentiles. The Jews had their chance. Christ, they, but they rejected Paul, and they rejected Christ. Thus, the gospel was going to the Gentiles. And Paul did this faithfully and in truth. Now, in doing what he is commissioned to do, Paul is going to tell us what we are to do about it. We saw earlier in the chapter that we need to pray. In fact, it was for, foremost and first. And we see we can pray because Christ is our mediator. We do not need to go to someone else. We can go directly to God. So what do we do about it? We pray. Have you ever had a friend or a family member that you've poured your life into? You've invested so much time. You've invested resources and energy to putting them into a certain position or helping them so that they can move towards that position or change or give them... I mean, you, you give them stuff to change, to help them, to help them grow. Yet they do not listen. They do not use the tools that you've given them to be successful. And you watch them fail. It's all there, ready for them, but they just do not take advantage of what they are given. I think this may be the case here. We see what Christ has done in verses 5 and 6. He has laid the groundwork for our relationship with God, yet we do not use one of the key tools that we are given to build this relationship. Possibly the foremost tool, as verse 1 seems to hint. As prayer is a key part of worship, Paul then commissions certain people with the responsibility of leading in prayer. In verse 1 of chapter 2, everyone is called to pray. But here, Paul calls out men in particular. This is not one of those inclusive references to everybody that we occasionally tend to translate to men, because we don't have kind of a, a, a neutered word or whatever you want to call it, but... It is specifically to a male or a husband here. Um, we, also, we know this also because in the very next verse, it references women as opposed to the men of this verse. It seems Ephesus and Rome as a whole has the same problems we have today. 
men sitting back and letting women take responsibility to lead in worship and family. Here we see men called to pray. We see responsibility of teaching and public worship given to men in verse 12. We see in chapter 3 that men need to lead and be an example in their families. Why is this? Many of the relationships that God has created are a reflection of His and our relationship. A reflection of Christ and the church. In light of what we are talking about in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy 2, here's Ephesians 5, 25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It looks to me that we as husbands are to be to our wives as Christ is to the church. And with prayer being first or foremost, we should be leading in prayer, both in worship, in public worship and in our homes. Unmarried men, there's a few of you in here, you do not get off the hook because you are not married. You might get married and should be preparing for the, this leadership role. You should be striving. We, all of us men, should be striving to be faithful men. In Matthew 25, Christ tells a parable about a master giving money to servants. He trusts them with that money. And the servants, and he comes back, and then he takes that money from them. And those that took care of that money and uh, used that money faithfully, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that he needs faithful men to entrust the teachings and doctrines that he has been teaching Timothy. Note that neither of these men were married. We men must be faithful in what is entrusted to us. Prayer is one of those things. Men should be praying in every place. As Matthew Henry says in his commentary, we must pray in our closets, pray in our families, pray at our meals, pray when we are on journeys, and pray in solemn assemblies, whether more public or private. No place is amiss for prayer, no place more acceptable to God than another. So traditionally, the Jews would only pray in the temple. But remember, Christ is now our mediator, and he does not just hang out at the temple with the priests. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, You are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwell in you. So prayer should, could and should happen everywhere. There's no prerequisite or requirements. When Paul was instructing Timothy, there was no special forms of prayer or special structures in the church. 
bowing our head and closing our eyes, wasn't even invented yet. Uh, it definitely was not commanded that we do that. It was, a, was a re, it was regular people bringing their supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving before God. However, we need to be right with God. This verse says, lift, lifting up holy hands. What does this mean? Is this figurative or literal? What are holy hands? Holy here means undefiled by sin, free from wickedness, religiously observing every moral obligation, pure and pious. Really, sin is a heart thing. And hands are the object that most of us have almost as hard time keeping clean as our hearts. So it seems that this is a heart posture rather than literal. However, doing a literal posture can help us visualize our heart posture and what it should be. Holy hands here probably refers to the Old Testament use of clean hands, which is a symbolism for a blameless life. So from Psalms 24, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But how? How can we have a heart that is undefiled by sin, free from wickedness? As, as sinful humans, we cannot do this on our own. We have all sinned, but we have a mediator in Christ Jesus that can help us with a pure heart. Paul finishes the focus on prayer by indicating that we need to be right with each other as well. Prayer must be without anger or quarreling. This refers to relationships with others. In Romans 12:16, we are called to live in harmony with one another. But more specifically, in Matthew 5, starting in verse 23, we see that we need to be right with our brothers and sisters before we even can worship. It says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Christ requires us to be right with others. In Mark eleven twenty five, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Warren Wearsby summed this up. Effective praying demands that I be in a right relationship with God and with my fellow believers. As I close, I want to leave you with some questions. Are you right with God? Humble yourself before him. Remember, we can go directly to God because of what Christ has done on the cross. And if you have questions about it, the person sitting next to you may be able to answer, or, or one of the elders can talk to you about what it means to be right with God. Are you right with your fellow brothers or sisters? Please make things right with them. Are we putting our prayer as a top priority in our lives? This is key in growing our relationship with God, our most important relationship. Men, are you leading in prayer in your homes and in your church? This is what we are called to do as part of the God-ordained structure that we have been placed in. 
Please think, think about these questions and think how you need to respond to God. And as we grow as a church, part of what that will look like, will be, we will be following what the Bible tells us to do as a church. And that's why we're partly why we're going through this study of 1 Timothy. And that includes finding faithful men to lead. So men, don't be surprised if an elder comes and asks you to do something and leading in different aspects of our local fellowship. And yes, that would include prayer. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.